There we go. When you need a transition, a round of applause is always good. How, how is the 10 a.m. doing? That was weak. How's the 10 a.m. doing? There we go. Um, as Vorno said, we are jumping back into the book of Acts. If you've tracked with us through the year, you'll know we preach through series, and the majority of our series this year are actually going to be based in the book of Acts. So we did a first season in Acts at the beginning of the year, and then we've taken a break um, through just before Easter and through Easter and even one week beyond, uh, and Laura Lake finished that last week. But we're jumping back into a second season within the book of Acts, and we kick off in a new series. And so let me catch you up if you've missed anything. We ended in in Acts chapter 5, and basically what we have tracked is the beginning of the church, the early church that was set out in motion by Jesus. He literally commissions them to take the gospel to the world. His, uh, his command to them is, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we saw the OG revival, the revival of the, and the start of the early church. And Jesus built them into this unstoppable church that is growing and expanding. And up until this point, they had only been within uh, kind of the bounds of Jerusalem. It didn't need to end there. It needed to expand further. And that's where we jump into this new series called Expansion, where we're going to track the, uh, the spread and the expansion of the gospel. And it will cross not just geographical lines. It's going to cross racial lines, political lines, socioeconomic lines, because it will literally give us this truth that the gospel is for everyone. It was the plan that this was going to go to the ends of the earth. It was, and this is the, the radical power of the good news of Jesus, is that it's not just for the Jew, it's for the Gentile. It's for those who are rich and those who are poor. It's for those who are young and those who are old. It's for men, it's for women. There is no divide, no barrier, no line where the gospel won't go. And that's the truth of the book of Acts, the early church, and it is still the truth we see today. Why don't you pray with me and we're going to jump in. Father God, as we jump back into the book of Acts, I pray you'll be doing a work in our hearts. Lord, in the 8 a.m., we had a, a, a contribution on stage. And it's so perfect that the word was that you, we are going into a season of expansion. Literally use the word. You are doing something at a heart level within us as a community and church where you are putting and sowing seeds of an expansive nature. I pray that it's, it's your heart. I pray that we would mirror it. I pray that you would uh, give us the tools to go the way you want us to go, to do the things you want us to do, to be the church you want us to be. The church in Acts absolutely changed the world. Lord, would we be world changers because of the gospel and the good news you have. We're all about Jesus. That's what we're going to be about. That's what we're about today. Would your truth speak to us? Would it shape us? And would it encourage us to move forward? And everybody said, amen. So we're going to be jumping into Acts chapter 8. Uh, we will be going back to Acts 6 and 7. Don't worry, we're going to get, that, get into that in a future series. But I'll catch you up. There's been a growing opposition to the gospel moving. So the gospel's moving, the church is, is gaining steam, but there is this growing opposition to the point where the early church and the early Christians are being harassed and beaten, arrested. And it gets to a tipping point in Acts chapter 7 where one of the early church leaders, a guy called Stephen, gets stoned to death, executed. And so the opposition has now got to its highest point. It actually says that there's this great persecution that rises. It's an interesting thing to, to, to note. 
And so there's a few things, a few headlines I want to get in. Three, three headlines we're going to look at today. They are all F words. The 8 a.m. laughed at that, so you guys definitely are much holier. Because uh, I know this church loves alliterations, and I probably could have picked other things, but somehow it just were, it, that's where it landed today. And so I want to look at this first heading, which is the fire starter of the gospel. It starts in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says this, and Saul approved of his execution. The execution is talking about is Acts 7, Stephen getting stoned. The persecution getting real, the opposition getting real. And this guy Saul enters the scene. We're going to hear a lot about him in Acts. Spoiler alert, he becomes the Apostle Paul. Greatest story of turnaround that this was a guy who literally took part and approved of the killing of Christians. What a change God does in this man's heart. To literally, he writes most of our New Testament. Crazy. And so we're going to see a lot more in that. But we'll get into what's happening in Acts chapter 8. It continues... And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's important, except the apostles. So as we look at this first heading of the fire starter of the gospel, I would ask the question, well, what moved the gospel forward? Early on in Acts uh, chapter 2, what we saw start and fire start the gospel in, in the city of Jerusalem was Pentecost. And so the fire that moved the gospel forward was the fire of the Holy Spirit. The fire that is now going to start the gospel expansion is a very different fire. It's a fire of persecution. It is literally the thing that will scatter the church to go to the areas where Jesus had called. Jesus commanded in Acts chapter 1, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They're in Jerusalem, persecution rises, they get scattered to where? To Judea and Samaria. This is two years after Jesus had said these words when we get to Acts chapter 8. I actually think there's a pretty strong argument to be made from Scripture that the early church had been dragging its feet in Jesus' command. I think they could have expanded earlier And God would actually use this persecution to scatter his people so that the gospel would go exactly where he had called them to take it, to Judea and Samaria. And uh, this great persecution actually made the church go where the church would have never gone on its own. It calls them to Samaria. We're going to get into the depth of why that was a big deal. Because the, 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 the line that gets crossed is huge, and it's the very first line the gospel will cross. The question I have, though, looking at this great persecution is, well, can God use earthly opposition to give us heavenly direction? And when you take a look at the beginning and the expansion of the gospel now beyond the borders of Jerusalem, I think you have a really good resounding yes, because they were not going to go on their own. And as opposition and persecution comes, it is actually the thing God will use to scatter them and give them direction into where the gospel needed to go. I really believe that any opposition that comes against us, our first reaction so often is a prayer that goes like this, God, will you remove it? God, will you take away X? Will you give me Y? And I think our reaction, our our prayer needs to change to be, God, will you reveal your will through this? Because as they were under persecution and opposition in Jerusalem to the point where literally a mate of theirs gets killed, you can imagine their heart, their humanity would have been crying out, God, will you stop it? And yet God goes, don't worry, 
I'm going to use this. Because that scattering is actually going to scatter you like seeds of the gospel that will be sown in different places so that we get to the ends of the earth because that's how this thing has to go. I think we have to change our view and change the questions we ask. I actually was having a conversation uh, with someone in our music ministry and they were telling me the story and I thought it was such a great encouragement in, in how we view opposition, in how we view persecution, in how we view something negative and yet we know as we sung, God can take anything and turn it for his good because he is sovereign, he is over it all and so he has the checks and balances of what is positive and negative and he will bring it to the point where he opens the door to our flourishing. He opens the door to us walking in his ways as his people according to his purposes. And so he, he shared the story with me. Uh, with the work he's in, the companies in, pre-COVID, an opportunity came up. Uh, a position in management opened up that it, he was keen for. And he applied for it, went through the interview process. They were hoping to promote someone from within the company. And so him and another guy were up for uh, this promotion. The other guy wasn't too great, and actually it turned out he got the job. And so he got overlooked. And you can imagine in a human heart in that moment, there's disappointment. There's, God, I was so keen on this. God, why? Why, why wouldn't you give me this? Because it actually wasn't a great season. That guy managed that team, and it wasn't a nice experience. But the funny story is then COVID hit, and that company went through some rough times and had to make some tough decisions. And one of those decisions were that they needed to cut all of their middle management. And so his job was protected and saved because he wasn't in that, that guy who got promoted actually lost his job. And we look at these situations and say, hey God, this persecution, this opposition, would you just remove it? Why? I don't understand it. And yet we forget that God can use that for our protection and he can use it to give us direction. It's what he has always done. It's what he can always do in his power. And it's what they were trying to do in the midst of persecuting the early church. They didn't realize that history has shown us when you squeeze God's people, when you squeeze a true Christian, you will never get to the point where there's destruction. Actually, what you find is greater growth than in any other circumstance. Because the proven truth of the gospel is this, that prosperity is often the most dangerous thing for the human heart and will compared to adversity. Because in prosperity, we feel like we're okay on our own. In prosperity, we feel like, hey, we have the strength to deal. It's only when adversity strikes, when the negative comes, when the opposition comes, when persecution comes, and it was persecution that actually lit the fire that actually set the gospel ablaze so that it spread like fire, wildfire across the world. It's why Paul actually, Saul, who approved of that execution, has this heart change happened? It's why he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, verse nine, he says, but he said to me, this is God speaking, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It is true of us individually and it was true of the church corporately, that when we think we are strong, we will have faith in us, but when we know that we are weak, we will put our faith in him. 
And it's in that space that he will move us in a direction towards his purpose. And it won't be for the temporary, it won't be for the now. I'm not saying it's all easy and this is going to, it will be for eternal power and eternal purpose. I think uh, in the idea of prosperity and adversity, I know uh, for those of us who are parents, this is a reality and a fear that can sometimes creep in. I have this conversation with lots of uh, friends who are having children or have children. We have a great fear because you just, you have that heart as a parent for your kid that you want them to have all that they need. You want them to have those desires, but you also realize that there is adversity in the world, that there's darkness in the world and you want to protect them for it. And I know many have picked up and said, you know what? The adversity in this country, the fear in this country, I can't deal. I don't want to bring my child into this. I want to protect them from it. Do you know what's the, the one comfort? Adversity never does bad stuff for a human heart. Because adversity actually creates a resilience in us that you don't see elsewhere. Take a South African, put them anywhere, and watch what they can do. Because we know what it means to live in adversity. We know what it means to have things not work. We know, we know what it means when things go wrong. We know what it means when there can be opposition and adversity because we've lived in it. And I don't ever want us to like minimize that. I understand the struggle. I understand the crisis. I understand what it means to look at your, your child and not want them to go through it. But the encouragement is always that adversity can build a resilience, not just physically, not just mentally, not just emotionally, it can build a resilience spiritually because the reliance will be to God and not ourselves. The reliance will be on God, his eternal power and not circumstance and not finance and not the, the, the feign of security that we sometimes put in things. Oh, my paycheck's my provider. That can be taken away. Oh, you know what? The electric fence is my protector. Can I tell you that can be cut? It's probably load shedding. And yet we can have that moment of resilience, strength at a heart level, where we know who has won the battle for us. It gives us eternal hope. Second big heading. So we had the fire starter of the gospel. We then get into the firebrand of the gospel. Now a firebrand, if you don't know what it means, a firebrand is anything that agitates and causes conflict within a situation because it will agitate against the norm, against the status quo. Sometimes rebels are labeled as firebrands because they go against what is considered accepted or normal. Now the gospel at its very core is offensive and can agitate against our beliefs, our feelings, because that's how it is <laughs> made up. The gospel actually pays no respect to the boundaries and the lines that are drawn by man. Because we know we do this. We say, well, that's acceptable here, but it's not acceptable there. God, you love us, but surely you couldn't love them. We draw the line. It pays no respect to that. And the reason it pays no respect to that is because it is the power of God to do what? This is what it says in the beginning of Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul actually will hit on the first barrier, the first line, the first obstacle that the expansion will cross and what we look at today. It's this expansion of the gospel across racial and political lines. 
It actually is the crossing of the gospel to people who were deemed not worthy of God's love, of his mercy, of his grace. It continues, Acts chapter, four, verse, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed Christ to them. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Persecution gets used by God, and it will scatter the church. And Christianity now will explode out of Jerusalem, and the first place it goes is to Samaria. And I think that was intentional. I think God knew exactly what he was doing, sending it there first, because it could have gone in any direction, but he chose it for it to go there. He chose for this barrier, this line to be crossed. If you're unaware, let me give you a quick, quick summary of Samaritan and Jewish history. Samaritans were absolutely hated by the Hebrew people by the Israelite Jews because they were seen as traitors and half-breeds. They were actually seen as less than human. Samaria actually is right in the middle of Israel. It's a central region uh, of Israel. It was a part of what used to be the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom had got uh, overthrown by the Assyrian Empire in about 721 B.C., and so what would happen is, as they were taken over by this enemy people, the Assyrians, what they would do is carry off the nobles to scatter them and put them in exile, and anyone left in Samaria would then be mixed with pagan enemy people. And so as the Assyrians were trying to dilute their enemy, what happened was there was now a compromise on the part of the Samaritan Jews because they were historically Jewish, part of God's chosen people, and yet now were intermingling, mixing with pagan enemy people. And so the Jews hated them because they were the ones who had married foreigners. They had tainted bloodlines because they had now half-breed children. They had incorporated pagan worship into their lives. And this has happened generation on generation on generation. And so they were so hated, they were so seen as traitors, as ones who had gone against not just their people, but had gone against God. The worst thing you could ever call a Jew was a Samaritan. I'll give you some accounts of just how bad it was through the Gospels, this line that was drawn, this, the, this racist view that came into the nation of Israel. Actually, in uh, John chapter 9, the religious leaders are coming against Jesus and they actually want to insult him and call him out. And they have two claims that they have against him. Number one, we believe you're demon possessed. And number two, you're a Samaritan. And they hold those two things at equitable value. It's just as bad as the other. You are demon possessed and you're a Samaritan. It was an insult that they knew exactly what they were doing. And this wasn't a prejudice that just lived within the nation of Israel. It even lived within the disciples as they were walking with Jesus. Because actually in Luke 9, um, James and John ask Jesus this question. Can we not call down the fire of heaven to destroy Samaria? That's what they ask of Jesus. And it's funny, Luke chapter 10, very next chapter, a couple days later, Jesus will tell a story, a parable and he will make the hero of a story the good Samaritan. 
And what we sometimes miss in the midst of Scripture is, as he was telling that story, he was looking James and John dead in the eye. Because he was making a point. The line you have drawn, I have no respect for. Because my love, my gospel, my mercy, my grace is not just for you. It's for everyone. Actually, I was uh, leading worship here on Friday night at City Youth. And I was leading with Sivu, uh, who's up doing City Crew right now. It's funny, I told the 8 a.m. this. It's it's a coolest fact. Probably means nothing in your life and you'll forget this, but it's a sidebar that I'll add. Um, I've known Sivu for a long, long time. I sat next to her in grade one. Um, Me and Sivu have led worship together for more than half our life now. We've officially crossed the boundary. She's 31, I'm 30. We started leading together when we were 15. And so we've for 15 years stood on stages and led worship. And so standing on Friday, we had this moment where I was like, yo God, look at what you've done. But just before we started City Youth, she she shared this encouragement um, with the City Youth team and their leaders. And she took them to Luke chapter 19. And it's a story where there's these 10 lepers who uh, cry out to Jesus, would you help us? Would you save us? Would you heal us? And Jesus obliges. And what he says is, go show yourself to the religious leaders at the temple that you are now clean. Even though they weren't yet. But they go in faith and they walk. And it says that as they go, they are healed from their leprosy so that their skin literally changes and is now healthy. And one decides to go back and thank and praise Jesus. And the one comes back and meets Jesus and begins to praise him as the Messiah. And Jesus actually looks at it and acknowledges this divide because he doesn't just say, hey, I know there was 10, why did only one come back? He says, why is the one that came back, the only one who came back, a foreigner, a Samaritan? He even acknowledged the boundary was there, the line had been drawn, and yet he affirms, my gospel is not just for you, it's even for the Samaritan. Because he accepts that worship, he accepts that thanks from that Samaritan leper who was healed in faith. It's not, no small thing that the first time the gospel leaves home, it goes to where, it goes to the enemy. There's no, it's no small thing that when the gospel leaves home, it goes to those who are hated, who would have been deemed by God's people at the time, the nation of Israel, who would have been deemed not worthy of it. It's no small thing that it, in, in its first instance, the first line it will cross is a racial line a political line. And I know there'll be something, this is my disclaimer, I know there's some people who get antsy because it's like, well, we're in church, we shouldn't be talking race and politics. But I want you to know this. I don't advocate for the gospel being racial or political. I don't think it is. I think it's bigger than that. I think when Philip went to go preach, he, he went to Samaria where it was very clearly a racial and political divide. He didn't preach to that thing, but he's preached Christ. The question we always should be asking is, can the gospel speak to race and politics? The answer is 100% yes. Because it pays no mind to the lines that we draw. It pays no mind to the political ideology we sign up for. It pays no mind to the pigmentation of our skin. It wants to speak to our eternal hope and our eternal view of Jesus as king. And that's it. Now that implication is going to change everything. Because the implication is, hey, I'm going to point out your prejudice. Hey, I'm going to point out you are the one who has drawn a line and said, but surely, God, it can't go there. Surely it can't go to them. 
Think about what would have happened for Philip. Philip goes, preaches in Samaria. Samaritans come to know Jesus, respond to the gospel. Salvation comes to and it's legit, it's real. So much so that even later in Acts chapter eight, we have Peter and John, and it says, came down to Samaria to meet with the Samaritans who had now become Christians, to welcome them in, and then pray for them, and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, even for Peter and John at that moment, being raised in the prejudice that they would have been raised in, do you know how crazy it would, and mind-boggling it would have been for them to see Samaritans filled with the Spirit like them? But God knew what he was doing. I also love that scripture is so uh, right that it says they came down to Samaria because Jerusalem's slightly higher. It's always my pet peeve when people say, hey, yeah, I'm coming down to Joburg from Cape Town. You're not. On a map, it's up. In elevation, it's up. Joburg, we're high. You go down to Durban, down to Cape Town. There's someone online who's sitting in Cape Town now, like getting bleak with me. <laughs> I think this was a heart check moment. It was a heart check moment for those Jewish Christians who were quite comfortable in Jerusalem. Because God says no. Because you can imagine, there would have been those who heard of Philip's uh, evangelizing in Samaria and, and the spirit falling and, oh, the gospel's gone. And they'll be, they'll be thinking to themselves, surely not. Surely not them. And God's answer is, yep, because this is my gospel and this is who it's for. It's for everyone. See, I think the truth we can never let go of is this, that the gospel can't just live in the ecosystem of our racial group. It can't live in the ecosystem of our worldview, of our political lean, of our culture, of our homogenous look and feel and what we feel is comfortable, our Jerusalem. It is far more than that because the plan was always that it would be for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. See, the nation of Israel fell for many eras, but their biggest era prob probably was this. They had grown an exclusive view of salvation, that it's just for us, that we are God's chosen people. That's true. But what they had forgotten was the ingredients that were baked into the foundation of them being set up as a nation, nation chosen by God. Take it right back to Abraham, their father, before Israel was even a thing. God comes to a man named Abraham and he makes a promise and gives him a blessing. And the promise is this, the covenant that literally set the foundation of Israel. He says, from you will come many nations and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. It was always the plan. Salvation will come through you and it will be for everyone. They had forgotten what was foundationally based in God's, God didn't change his mind. He wasn't like, I'm gonna save the Jews. Oh wait, let me add everyone else on top. It was the plan from square one. The question for us is how many times, if we're honest, do we look at situations where God is either calling us to be involved or we hear God has been involved and our reaction is surely not them. Surely God didn't do something there. Do you know what they're like? Do you know who they are? Do you know what they have done to me?
and maybe we've got very comfortable in our Jerusalem. Because I think there's a really good argument that they were comfortable in Jerusalem. Two years, Jesus told you, hey, go. And they said, no, we're cool here. I think we get in that space where we're cool here. And the question God has is, are you willing to go to Samaria? Are you willing to go where I call? Are you willing to go to those who you would consider not worthy, who actually there's an obstacle, there's a line, there's a barrier in the way? That barrier still would have existed for Philip, and yet Philip went. That's the firebrand of the gospel. Last heading is this, the fuel of the gospel. I think as Philip went and he would preach the gospel, we see that the result is two things, salvation and joy. Verse 8 told us joy in that city. And the truth is, when the gospel is preached, you can guarantee there will always be those two things. God will call people to himself, salvation, and the only thing that is left is joy. But as we take a deeper look at what fuels that expansion and that move of the gospel, I think it comes down to two things. It comes down to love and truth. And I think that's what Philip had in fueling the expansion of the gospel. We hear in this passage, actually, that there is great sin amongst the Samaritans. They were serving idol uh, gods. They were actually stuck in idol worship. There's even a guy who enters in Acts chapter 8, and he's known as Simon the sorcerer. And so he would serve pagan gods and would worship the demonic for his own financial and power gain within the Samaritan society. And that guy, Simon the sorcerer, gets absolutely rocked by the preaching of Philip. See, because I think deceit and death had grabbed a hold of this. There are a lot of characters within Acts chapter 8. You have Philip, you have the Samaritans, you have Simon the sorcerer. But I think there's only two characters that really matter in this passage in Acts. And the two characters that matter are God and Satan. Because what does God bring? What is God the source of? He is the source of love and justice. He is the one who can bring love in truth. It's why we're commanded, bring the truth in love. And on the opposite end, what do you have Satan do? Because John 10.10 tells us that he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He's given the title, the great deceiver. And so that means he's going to come directly against truth. He's he'll sow injustice because he doesn't want the justice of truth that God can bring. And so he'll even create, hey, let me create an environment where love cannot thrive. And so I enjoy an environment where there are lines drawn and boundaries where these lines come into play because your pigment looks different, we're going to have a different view. Because your culture looks different, I'm going to have a superior view. Because you do things a different way, I'm going to have a superior view. It's a great space where there's now no space for truth or justice or love. It's a space for death and deceit. Because this was the truth of the Samaritans. They had, the truth was, they had forsaken God. How can you expect to have love and justice when you remove the source of love and justice? You can't. And so it creates a vacuum. And what gets filled up in that vacuum? Death and deceit. And so deceptive men like Simon the sorcerer will come along and they will offer up their counterfeit truth, their version of truth. They will put things in front of us that they believe, hey, you will, th you will find this valuable when they are things of this world and not things of eternity. And so Philip will bring a very quick awakening 
the pure gospel, Jesus Christ as Messiah. And what it will do is reintroduce justice and truth because it will call out their sin. It will call out where they have sought other things apart from God. And it will also make a way where that can be redeemed and they can be brought back into relationship with God. And so love and justice can now overcome death and deceit. I love how Philip addresses this. I love how Philip approaches the Samaritans. A quick little bio on on Philip, because there's not much info given to us in scripture about who he was. In Acts chapter six, uh, the early church, the apostles will actually appoint seven men uh, to help pastor and lead within this growing church. The first one mentioned is Stephen who gets stoned. The second one mentioned is Philip. And so he was very clearly someone with a pastoral heart because a part of the duties of those seven was to take care of the church's welfare programs, uh, where the church would care for those who were uh, children or or widows or orphans or those who were in need within their community. And so he very clearly had a pastoral heart. We also see clearly he was filled by the Spirit and had the special spiritual gift of evangelism. Later after this, he will actually move to a place called Caesarea, not far from Jerusalem, and that's where he will live out his days, and he gets given the title, Philip the Evangelist. He actually, as Paul will go on missionary journeys, we'll hear about later in Acts, uh, Paul will actually stop off in Caesarea and stay with Philip. We know that his family was strong in serving the Lord because he has four daughters, and the four daughters actually have the spiritual gift of prophecy given by the Holy Spirit. And so the, this, this idea of a guy who is leading uh, in the church, who is advancing and expanding the gospel, it never stopped just with him. It even went into the next generation of his family. And so he has children who will serve the Lord in the same way. I think he's a great example of what it means to see the, the importance and the value of expanding the gospel. I want to take a look quickly at his model in addressing and approaching the Samaritans. Understand the boundaries would have been very clear. They were enemies. They probably didn't have a context. This Jew is coming to us. I don't know what's the story. He had a lot of stuff to work through. And yet he gives us a very simple approach that I think is actually based on what he saw in Jesus. First thing he does is Philip goes with love. There's two keys there. Number one, he goes. He doesn't send a letter to Samaria. He doesn't send some money to Samaria. He gets up and he walks to Samaria. He goes actively as God had called him to preach the gospel. And he goes in love. And understand, it's not just a love for God. I love you, I'll obey you, but I'll do it through gritted teeth. He actually does it in love for the Samaritans too. Even though they were bitter enemies. Even though that prejudice probably is something he had grown up with, he understands, hey, the love I've been given, I can now extend. And that love is not selective. That love is not exclusive. That love actually can go to anyone, to all, because that's where God's love goes. He does it and he goes in love. Second thing he does is he builds a bridge. I don't get me wrong. People like me, we stand on stages like this. Truth is very important to us. It is important. But if there is no bridge that truth can go over, none of this matters. It's why we're commanded in scripture to bring the truth in love. Because if you don't have a bridge that is built for the truth to be delivered, it won't even be heard. And so he'll build a bridge and he does it by his actions. The pure fact of him going to them in their space, in their time, in their city, 
going in love, seeing them in the deceit that they were falling into, seeing the affliction that they were in because of the sin and the, and the pagan gods they had gone after. He meets them and his actions show them and actually earn the right to be heard. It was the model Jesus did and it's the model we see in Philip. See, because Jesus' actions brought the crowds. They wanted to see the miracle. They wanted to see a healing. They wanted to see something. They wanted to hear the great teaching. But it was his truth that would change them. And so Philip doesn't just end with, hey, I'm just going to love on them. I'm just going to care for them. Um, and that's where it ends. He does get to the point where now truth can be delivered. And so Philip delivers truth because he has earned the right to be heard. It says that they pay attention, very specifically, with one accord. They pay attention. He had earned the right, and he takes his moment where he will now preach the gospel, the pure gospel, Christ as Messiah to them. I know you are looking for the Messiah. I know we have common ground because you have a belief that the Messiah will come and deliver you from all. Let me tell you about him. Let me give you the truth that you have been deceived because you are following pagan gods. Let me give you the truth that my people have told you you're not worthy of it, but let me tell you, you were worthy of Jesus dying on the cross for you. Because there is no line, there is no barrier, there is no obstacle, there is no wall that could be built by man that God won't get over in his love and his gospel coming after you and me. And the last thing he does is Philip is a carrier of joy. I said the two things you can always be guaranteed with when the, pro, when the gospel is preached. You will see salvation, and when that deceit and death has been taken away, the only thing that is left is joy. If you want to bring joy to someone for a day, go work at Disneyland. If you want to bring joy for eternity, deal in the gospel. Because when we work in the gospel, we realize that we are carriers of not just the hope of eternity, but we are carriers of true joy even in this life. And as we carry it, we get to share it in the spaces, the places, the relationships we have. We've been speaking about that in our theme this year of Cultivate. We get to be carriers of joy that bring it into every situation. Because understand, joy is not happiness. Because happiness is circumstantial. Joy is eternal. Because joy is not based on you and me now. It's based on Jesus now and Jesus in the future. It's based on Jesus is with me now in the chaos and the mess. But Jesus is also the one who has won the battle and has won the war. And so in eternity, I have a hope that goes far beyond this world. This is a truth that I think should grab a hold of us and encourage us and push us forward. I was having a conversation before this gathering. I think what the book of Acts is doing in the midst of our church, and I agree with this, is it is pushing this unrelenting move of the gospel. This unrelenting, we need to share the gospel. This unrelenting, we hold the hope and the joy of heaven and eternity and we can give it to a world that's so desperate for it. The light has overcome the darkness. We see the darkness in the world, we see the adversity of our world, but we know that we hold the, hold the light. We know that we have the truth and, the, and we have the love that can wrap it up so that it will change everything so we see salvation and we see great joy. Why don't you stand with me as the band joins us on stage? We're going to get ourselves ready to worship and, and we're going to sing that song, My Testimony, again because it sits in this truth that what God has done with you, He can do with someone else. The love He has given to you, you can extend to someone else. 
the light he has uh, put on in your life, he can, do, he can literally call you to a Samaria to bring that light. And I think the challenge for us is that we get comfortable in our Israel, we get comfortable in what we believe is, is worthy of it, our Jerusalem, and yet Jesus called us to more than that. The plan was always Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. We're going to be a church that we, we're about Jerusalem. We're going to be a church that we're about Samaria. We're going to cross those lines. Nothing's going to stop it. Where the church is going to go to Judea, we're going to go to the ends of the earth. Because that is what we have been called into. The challenge is there. We're called to bring his love, his mercy. We're called to bring his message. We're called to bring his truth. We have to hold all these things in balance. And the truth is, in our strength, we can't do it. We can never think we're strong enough to do it on our own because we'll put our faith in ourselves. We have to realize how weak we are. And suddenly, his strength becomes ours. And so when we go to the Samaria, when we have a Samaria conversation, because understand, I I know for most of us, it's not going to be a geographical change. It's going to be an instant, a moment, an opportunity, a conversation in spa, a conversation at school, a conversation at your work. That's going to be a Samaria moment. Like we're on different pages here. We're in different ways. Conversation I keep having with pastor friends and, and, and other church leaders, and I think it's something God's building up in the church again because I think we've neglected it. Jesus had an incarnational ministry, meaning he put on flesh so he could say, hey, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to wear flesh, to have a temptation, to be hungry, to deal in grief, to, to have high highs and low lows. So in that space, let me meet you. And we're called to be incarnational in the same way. So we're called to meet people not based on, hey, we look the same. Hey, we think the same. Hey, we come from the same background, same culture, same socioeconomic status. But actually, you know what? We're just going to eat together. I want to understand. I want to see where you are. I want to actually earn the right to be able to speak. Because the love that's been given to me, I can give to you. Because the love that's been given to me doesn't have a boundary that it can't cross. Father God, as you've challenged us through your word, as you challenge hearts right now, wherever we find ourselves, I pray you will create, you will give us the opportunity for Samaria moments, for moments where you call us to cross the boundary, the prejudice we might have in our own heart, the prejudice that might be there, the line that might be drawn by man, knowing that there is no line that that is drawn by man that you can't overcome. Would you give us the courage to step out Would you give us the courage to go where you call us to? Would you give us the courage to go? Would you give us the courage to give your grace and mercy? Will you give us the courage to, even in your mercy, restrain ourselves where maybe there is something due and we hold it back and say, you know what? In this situation, grace, mercy, that's what's gonna speak louder than anything else. Because Lord, you are the one who is over it all. You're in it all. You're doing the work and you choose to work through us and that is a privilege. Would you use us? Would you take us to the places you want us to go? Jesus, even as we get ready to sing, even as we sing of our testimony, that is we were taken out of sin, out of death, and we were put in your light, your marvelous light, given eternal life. Lord, would it well up in us that this doesn't end with us, it goes far beyond us. We worship you, we love you. We honor you. You're the one who deserves it all, all honor, all praise. 
And so we sing with great hearts of gratitude, with great hearts of thanksgiving, with hearts that cry out to you for your strength and your courage to do what you call us to do. Let's sing together.